Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us for our Easter Sunday service today here in our sanctuary. And for those of you joining us online, we are so very glad to have you with us today. Can we borrow a tradition that's gone back uh, into church history? As I declare, the Lord is risen. You declare he is risen indeed. The Lord is risen. Yes, he is. And it's so good to have you with us. Many of you are here this morning, I expect, for the first time. And if you uh, got a worship guide on the way in, I'll point out that there is an outline of the message on the back. If you're joining us online, you can also access the bulletin online, as well as this, what's on our, if, if you're here in person, it's a perforated strip on your bulletin entitled, Hey, I'm Here. You can access that online, too. That's a way to uh, request more info about our church or give us any prayer requests you might have. We'd love to know that you're joining us today by your filling that out. Have you ever wondered why it is that Easter Sunday is inevitably the highest church attendance day of the year every year, by far? Have you ever wondered why that is? Some would say, well, it's just an American tradition, people getting dressed up just like Cadbury eggs and jelly beans. It's just tradition, right? But it's the same way around the world in Christian churches. Easter Sunday is a, a peak celebratory time for Christians worldwide. And while I, I suspect tradition plays a part in it, there's something much more important at uh, the foundation of it. And that is that the resurrection of Jesus is foundational to what we believe. So much so that the Apostle Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. That is, it's useless. Pretty strong thing for the Apostle Paul to write. And he does so in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in what is the longest chapter that teaches us about the resurrection in all of Scripture. And that's the chapter I'd like to look at this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, written by the Apostle Paul. He's teaching us why the resurrection of Jesus is so important to our faith, and three things that the resurrection provides for those who are believers in Jesus. First, and I think foremost, the resurrection of Jesus provides a foundation for our faith. The resurrection is an essential component of our faith. Here's what the Apostle Paul says about that in verses 1 through 4 of 1 Corinthians 15. He writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. And the word gospel simply means good news, good message. Which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And now he's going to uh, articulate the specific points of the gospel. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This, he says, is of first importance. Christ died for our sins in accordance to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance to the scriptures. It's interesting, in the Christian church, we talk a great deal about the crucifixion, and we should. We have crosses in our church, in the sanctuary, on the outside of our building. It's a symbol of the Christian faith, and it should be. It was there on the cross that Jesus 
bore the judgment for our sins so we might be forgiven. But it's interesting to note that in the preaching of the early apostles, the early Christian leaders, it seems that they gave more weight to preaching about the resurrection. For example, in the book of Acts chapter 2, we have the first great sermon of the early Christian church. The apostle Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost. It's a lengthy sermon. But in verses 23 to 36 of Acts chapter 2, he covers the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. He spends one verse on the crucifixion and all the other verses on the resurrection. He weaves in Old Testament passages to prove that the resurrection of Jesus was actually predicted in the Old Testament. Peter and Paul were the two best-known preachers in the early Christian church. Paul and his great sermon recorded in Acts chapter 13 does a similar thing. There in verses 28 to 37, he preaches about the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection. He spends one verse on the crucifixion, one on the burial, and the other eight verses on the resurrection of Jesus. Why is that? Well, I think for one, the apostles knew that in the Roman world, many people were crucified. It was a common form of Roman execution, a terrible thing, but common. But no one else but Jesus was ever resurrected. So this becomes for Paul and for us a foundation of our faith. Secondly, the resurrection of Jesus confirms the trustworthiness of Scripture. As we've already seen, and we'll see again in verses 3 to 8 of 1 Corinthians, the resurrection was predicted in the Scripture. We read again, Paul said, I delivered you as of first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with what? The Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then note what Paul does. He gives eyewitness evidence. Witnesses who can attest that Jesus really was raised. That he appeared to Cephas. Cephas is another name for Peter. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. After Jesus' resurrection, Paul says he appeared to a group of over 500 people all at the same time. Most of them are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, some are dead, but some are still living. He's saying, you can go check this out yourself. He's not calling us to believe with so-called blind faith. He's calling Christians to believe in faith that's based on evidence. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all is to one untimely born. He appeared also to me. Jesus, after his resurrection, appeared to two of his followers on the road to Emmaus. They were talking with each other about what had just transpired in Jerusalem. And Jesus came up and joined them, and they didn't recognize him at first. And he said, Listen, as he listened to them talk, and, and uh, particularly about the resurrection, he says, Oh, foolish and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then we read this. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Imagine what that would have been like to be walking down the road to Emmaus with Jesus and to have him go through 
all the Old Testament writings from Moses and the prophets and to point out where they predicted his suffering, his resurrection, his life. What a teaching that must have been. Later, he appears to the apostles and he says to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you. Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. The point is this. If Jesus were not raised from death, then these prophetic verses are not true. But if Jesus did rise from death, that's a very good reason for us to trust that God's words are true and his promises are reliable. This is another reason that the resurrection is absolutely foundational to the Christian faith. A third reason is that the resurrection proves Jesus to be who he claimed to be. Many people were crucified in Jesus' time. In fact, when Jesus was crucified, there was a, a criminal crucified on either side of him. But no one else was raised from death like Jesus. And Jesus had predicted his own resurrection. In Matthew 16 and verse 21, we read these words. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now his disciples didn't want to hear this. In fact, Peter rebuked him for saying it. But Jesus said it more than once. He said it here. He said it in the Gospel of Mark. He said it in the Gospel of John chapter 2. He would be crucified. He'd be put to death and he would be raised. That's why the Apostle Paul says that, that Jesus, who was descended from David according to the flesh, was declared to be or proven to be the Son of God and power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. The resurrection proves Jesus to be who he claimed to be. And this is why the Apostle Paul could say the remarkable thing he says in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. It's useless. You're still in your sins. But if he has been raised, it is the foundation for what we believe, the resurrection of Jesus. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ provides more for his people than a trustworthy foundation for what we believe. The resurrection actually has tremendous practical importance for followers of Jesus in this life. For one reason, the resurrection of Jesus provides us a new perspective about suffering and death. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul, when he gets to verse 30, is making the case that if the resurrection of Jesus were not true, I wouldn't go through what I'm going through. I wouldn't endure what I'm enduring. I wouldn't suffer the way I'm suffering. And he writes, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I die every day. It's a figure of speech. What if I gain, humanly speaking, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, 
If the resurrection of Jesus were not true, there's no way I would sacrifice what I sacrifice. I would suffer what I suffer. I'd say what the unbelievers say, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But no, the resurrection of Jesus actually frames his thinking, his attitude about sacrifice in life, suffering in life willing to go through hardship in life for Jesus, for his sake. Throughout human history, suffering has been a reality, of course. We all know that's true. But it's also been an argument against the existence of a good and loving God. Suffering, of course, is undeniable. Natural disasters, tsunamis, earthquakes, famines, hurricanes, and then the horrific things that human beings have done to one another and continue to do. It's terrible. And it leads many people to conclude what atheist Richard Dawkins does in the words that you'll see on the screen before you. Dawkins notes that the universe has precisely the properties we should expect. If there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. That's what the world likes, looks like with all of its suffering. It causes many people to harden their hearts toward God, turn away from God, refuse to believe in God, refuse to seek God. Because it just doesn't seem consistent with the existence of an all-powerful, good, and loving God. Someone has said that the hearts of some people are like clay. The hearts of others are like wax. And when the heat of adversity comes, the hearts of some harden. They become resistant toward God. They turn away from God, not to Him. But the heart of, hearts of others are like wax. And when the heat of suffering comes... They become more malleable, softer. They seek God. They turn to God. He works through the suffering to shape their lives, to work more deeply in their lives. The Bible, from beginning to end, gives us the accounts of people who went through much suffering. We would be hard-pressed to find anybody in the pages of the Bible about whom very much is written who didn't suffer. From Moses and Daniel to Job, whose name is synonymous with suffering, to King David, who lost not only an infant son, but an adult son who had betrayed him, who laments his sufferings as that we read about in the book of Psalms, to New Testament leaders like the Apostle Paul, and James, who writes to the church, brothers, is an example of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. In other words, all the prophets, they suffered. It's a reality of human life. But these people didn't turn away from God. They turned to God because they learned two very important truths. First of all, for the believer, all suffering has an end. All suffering is temporary. It's confined to this life only. 
And secondly, in our sufferings in this life, God is with us. He's the great shepherd of the sheep. He's the great comforter. He actually draws us close to himself, so much so that the Apostle Paul can say in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that I'll actually be glad about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can rest more powerfully within me. I prefer over what Richard Dawkins says, what Rebecca McLaughlin writes in her great book, Confronting Christianity. She writes the words you'll see on the screen. From an atheist perspective, not only is there no hope of a better end to the story, there is no ultimate story. There is nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. From a Christian perspective, there's not only hope for a better end, there's intimacy now, closeness now, with the one whose resurrected hands still bear the scars of the nails that pinned him to his cross. Suffering is not an embarrassment to the Christian faith. It is the thread with which Christ's name is stitched into our lives. Because the one who died has been raised and is alive, he promises to his people, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. He promises to walk with us throughout life as the Lord our shepherd, as the Lord our comforter, as the shepherd and bishop of our souls. And then, when we come to the doorway of death, and unless Jesus returns first, we all will. He promises to receive us to himself and to his presence. The atheist has no hope for life after death. As Stephen Hawking said in an interview titled, There is no heaven, it's only a fairy tale. There's no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers, referring to our brains as computers that eventually break down. That is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. But as Job said, Job who suffered so much, I know that my Redeemer lives. As Jesus said, John chapter 11, when he raised his friend Lazarus from death, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And the apostle Paul would say, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I long to depart, he wrote, and be with Christ, for that is better by far. Because of the resurrection for the Christian, death is actually a doorway into the very presence of God. And therefore, Paul, as he draws near the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, writes these words, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It sometimes helps me to think of life with an eternal perspective by considering a little diagram like this you'll see on the screen, picture of eternity. God sees all. God is not 
limited by time as we are. He is not constrained by time. He invented time as we know it, signs and seasons and days and years. He stands above and outside of time as we know it, and he sees all. He sees all of eternity. He sees the time when life on this earth will end. In fact, he has shown that to his servant, the Apostle John, when he wrote these words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Not only does God already see this, when this earth has passed away and the new heaven and new earth have, have come, he showed it to John almost 2,000 years ago. The point is simply this. For the believer, for the believer, we can face life within, with an eternal perspective, knowing that when we get to the doorway of death, it's merely a veil through which we will walk into the very presence of God who will receive us unto himself. All suffering is confined to the dot, the time on earth, in eternity. As John wrote, there will be no more crying or tears or pain. Jesus' resurrection provides his people with a new perspective towards suffering and death. And it might seem the Apostle Paul would, would end his chapter on the resurrection there with his statement about victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? That would seem to be a good place to, to end it. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. But he doesn't. He adds one more verse, and it's a critically important verse because it teaches us that the resurrection of Jesus provides something else. It provides for us purpose here in this life on the earth right now. He concludes the chapter on the resurrection with these words, Therefore, my beloved brothers. Now, when we see the word therefore, we know we look to see what it is there for. We look to see what precedes it. What, what's he been talking about in the previous verses? And he's been talking about the fact that the resurrection provides us victory over death and eternal perspective with which to live. He says, therefore, in light of this, the reality of the resurrection, what Jesus has done, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor's not in vain. Two emphases here. First, to be steadfast and immovable. He's ending this chapter the way he started it by telling his hearers to, to stand in the gospel. Hold fast this reality that Jesus is not dead. He's arisen. He's alive. We have a foundation for our faith. We have an eternal perspective toward life. But secondly, he says, in light of the resurrection, abound in the work of the Lord. Be abounding in his work. What does that mean? 
Does that mean you really should think about quitting your job and going to work for a nonprofit or a church or being a pastor or missionary? I don't think so. Not necessarily. What does it mean to abound in the work of the Lord? I think it means to do whatever you do for the glory of God. If you paint houses, to paint houses for the glory of God. If you treat patients, to treat patients for the glory of God. If you teach children, to teach children for the glory of God. If you run a business, run that business for the glory and honor of God. The Apostle Paul would write earlier to the Corinthians, whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. This frames our perspective toward our work, toward our purpose, toward our lives on earth. Rod Dreher, in his book, Live Not By Lives, cites studies indicating that Americans increasingly view the highest goal of life as self-fulfillment and enjoyment. Paul Miller, in, in his book, The J-Curve, writes that the, the central moral vision for people today is feelism. What makes me feel good? What makes me feel good about myself? What I enjoy. But Jesus' death on the cross for our sins and his resurrection are intended to give us something far, far better than self-focused enjoyment. Jesus' death and resurrection actually provides for us to enjoy God. Yes, actually enjoy God. To enjoy a relationship with God here and now and in all of eternity. I remember growing up uh, in the church we attended, I was taught something called the catechism. And... Uh, I, I don't remember much of it, but I remember the first question, very simple question. It's this, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man, the answer was, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That seemed to me an unusual thing, to think of enjoying God. When I would think of God, I would think primarily of obeying God doing what he says, or you might get in trouble. But enjoying God? That really is a biblical concept. King David referred to God as his chief joy, his greatest joy. We see this in the lives of key biblical writers. And the point, I think, is simply this. If you make it your goal to maximize your personal pleasure and enjoyment in this life, if, that, if that's your primary purpose in life, your joys are going to be fleeting. They're going to be short-lived. But if you seek to live to glorify God, your joy can be deep and lasting and even eternal. The resurrection of Jesus is foundational to what we Christians believe. It's an essential component of the gospel. It's a foundation for our faith. But more than that, it also enables us to view even suffering and death with a different lens, a different perspective. And 
It gives us purpose for our lives here on earth now to know and love God, to live for his glory that we might enjoy him forever. So as we close this morning, I'd like to just raise three quick questions by way of personal application. The first one is this. Have I received the gospel? Receiving the gospel is more than just agreeing with uh, certain facts about the Christian faith. It's more than intellectual assent. Notice what Paul writes again at the beginning of this chapter here, 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Note that the gospel, this message of Jesus, crucifixion, burial, resurrection, is something that must be believed and received. To receive Jesus is to, to come in dependence upon him in humble recognition of your sin and acknowledge that on the cross he paid the penalty for that sin. By his resurrection from the grave, he provides forgiveness and eternal life to you. But receiving him is more than just checking a, a mental box. Really receiving him as your Lord, becoming his follower. Have you done that? Secondly, am I living with a biblical perspective towards suffering and death? Remember, for the believer, all suffering is temporary. And in the suffering, he doesn't leave us. He says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. I'll walk with you through it. Countless believers would testify that it's been in their very difficult and hard times that they drew closest to God. And then thirdly, am I abounding in the work of the Lord? That is seeking to glorify God in all you do and finding your greatest joy in Him. Let's pray about those things now, if you would join me. And by the way, when I, when I end the prayer, on the screen you'll see the Apostles' Creed, and I'll invite you to recite that with me at the end of our prayer. So pray with me if you would, please. Father, we come now in the name of Jesus. I pray for anyone here in our sanctuary watching online who is uncertain about whether he or she is truly a Christian. For anyone who may have an intellectual belief in your existence but is not following you as Lord, I pray for that one today. That by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would enable that person to humble themselves and simply say, Lord, I believe and Lord, I receive you make me your follower father I pray now for those who I know are suffering terrible hardships I pray today that by the power of the Holy Spirit you would encourage them you would strengthen them you would make your love very very real to them I pray for an awareness of your nearness your presence and Father, for each of us, would you enable us to live more fully with an eternal perspective that we would abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, our labor is not in vain. May we know you as our greatest joy. Now, I'll invite you to join me 
in reciting the Apostles' Creed, a statement of faith that Christians have recited throughout the centuries. If you're comfortable, join me in this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen.